Hello and welcome back to Complexity Unpacked with Professor Gonsalves. Today we are resuming our fourth season uh, with the focus on forensic psychology and in this sixth episode we'll be looking at juries and the concept of not criminally responsible. So as a quick reminder, forensic psychology is that field of psychology that deals with all aspects of human behavior as it relates to the law or legal systems. In the previous episode, we talked about eyewitness testimony, one of the oldest and most widely studied topics in forensic psychology. It's also considered to be one of the most compelling types of evidence that the police and the courts rely on. This week's focus, and this episode's focus, is on the purpose of juries and its link to forensic psychology. We also consider mental illness as it relates to the ability to stand trial and to the commission of crimes. So in this first part, we'll open with juries and uh, we'll return to the subject of mental illness a little later on. So in Canada, the courts deal with both civil and criminal cases. Criminal cases of those in which an act was allegedly committed as found in the Canadian uh, Criminal Code. Civil cases involve a breach of contract or other claim of harm known as torts. Before a jury trial can begin, a jury needs to be selected or seated. In Canada, relative to the total number of trials, only a few are actually tried by jury. The Jury Act is provincial and territorial legislation that outlines the eligibility criteria for jury service and how prospective jurors must be selected. Jury selection is governed by federal law. A set of random names from a community are determined, often by telephone directories or voter lists. Prospective jurors receive a jury summons. As an aside, just so you know, if you ignore a summons and do not show up, you may incur a severe legal penalty, uh, such as a fine or jail time, even though that is not very common. In Canada, criminal trials have 12 jury members. So let's come back to that criteria for a second. In Ontario, where we are located, the criteria for serving on a jury includes being a Canadian citizen, being a resident in Ontario, and being at least 18 years of age. They also specify that a person may not serve on a jury if they are a member of government who is an elected official, they are a judge, a justice of the peace, a lawyer or a law student, they are a medical doctor or coroner, they work in law enforcement, they have a physical or mental disability that would prevent them from being able to perform the required duties of a juror, or they have uh, been convicted of an indictable offense for which a pardon has not been received. So the characteristics and responsibilities for juries in Canada include the fact that the Supreme Court of Canada indicates two fundamental characteristics of a jury. Right. So first one is a composition that represents the community in which the crime occurred. This is known as representativeness. And the second is a lack of bias on the part of the jurors, known as impartiality. So the two characteristics that are identified are representativeness and impartiality. Now, when you look at the jury function, the main legal function of a jury is to apply the law as defined by the judge 
to the admissible evidence in the case and then render a, ver a verdict of guilty or innocent. Um, you're essentially fact-finding, right? Um, ignoring that law as defined by the judge and the evidence and rendering a verdict based on some other criteria is, is actually called jury nullification. So clearly, it is essential that the jury members are able to follow clearly the law as defined by the judge and then apply the evidence as instructed. Four of the functions of a jury uh, you know, that are identifiable include to use the wisdom of 12 rather than the wisdom of one to reach a verdict, meaning there has to be some consensus in the way we arrive at uh, a verdict either way. The jury serves as the conscience for the community. They protect against out-of-date laws, and it increases the knowledge about the justice system in general, right? So there is a link, uh, and forensic psychologists, the, there is a link between forensic psychology and juries because forensic psychologists offer expertise to the subject of selecting individual jurors that match the case. And because they are highly qualified to offer expert information on behavior or individuals, they are usually a significant part of the determining of a jury composition. They utilize established knowledge based on research and studies to determine the best way to select and seat a jury in order to have the best opportunity at arriving at a fair and accurate verdict. The focus of this section will be on fitness to stand trial and mental state at the time of the offense. So the cornerstone of English Canadian law identifies two elements that must be present for criminal guilt to be established. A wrongful deed, also known as actus reus, and criminal intent, also known as mens rea. Both of these elements and the elements of the specific case must be found beyond a reasonable doubt for a guilty verdict to be reached. Issues of fitness, insanity, and mental disorders call into question these two basic elements of criminal law. It is reasonable to expect that in order for individuals who are charged with the commission of a crime to be tried fairly, they should have some understanding of the charges and proceedings and be able to help in preparing their own defense. When we say someone is unfit to stand trial, what we're referring to is an inability to conduct a defense at any stage of the proceedings on account of a person's mental disorder. The previous case law applied to the issue of fitness dates all the way back to 1836 in the case of R. versus Pritchard. Three important criteria were established from this case. Right? So, whether the defendant is mute of malice, that's intentionality, whether the defendant can plead to the indictment, and whether the defendant has sufficient cognitive capacity to understand the trial proceedings. It is important to note that historically people deemed to be unfit to stand trial could be sentenced to confinement at a mental institution indefinitely. Now this practice is considered incompatible with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but it was the way it was done for a long time. In fact, what they would identify as insane defendants often would serve more time in mental institutes than their prison sentence would have been following a standard guilty verdict. In the Canadian case R versus uh, Ballaram 
in 2003 the conclusion that an unfit person could well the conclusion was that an unfit person could not be sentenced the issue of a defendant's fitness may be raised by either the defense or the crown in canada and the burden of proving unfitness is on the party who raises the issue now only medical practitioners have been allowed to conduct court ordered assessments regarding fitness to stand trial and in a canadian context the canadian criminal code uh, excludes psychologists from conducting these assessments psychologists may assess uh, assist by conducting psychological testing which are then sent to a psychiatrist or other medical practitioner who incorporates the results into an assessment report for the court and that would be how they would determine fitness to stand trial when a defendant is found unfit to stand trial the goal of the criminal justice system is to get the defendant fit it's not an excuse it's not passing off and saying the person will never be tried it's merely to restore fitness so that the defendant can stand trial the most common form of treatment for fitness is medication a question facing the justice system concerning this form of treatment is whether a defendant has the right to refuse medication in the first place so this might be a circumstance in which a mental health disorder could be treated with medication and the lack of medication creates a state in which the person could not be held legally responsible or fit under the healthcare consent act and the mental health act an individual can refuse medication however if that person is incapable of making decisions concerning his or her uh, his or her medical treatment then a decision may be imposed by the law and the courts i mean they will take into account the individual's capacity to comprehend and appreciate the consequences of his or her actions and the impact to public safety the proceedings against a defendant who is found unfit to stand trial are generally halted until competency is restored so you can see that there is a tremendous effort and emphasis placed in restoring fitness so that a fair trial can happen for unfit defendants in canada the judge may order that the defendant be detained in a hospital or that the defendant may be conditionally discharged the defendant is reassessed for fitness within 45 days and if the defendant becomes fit he or she would return to court and the proceedings would resume right so cases where defendants continue to be unfit are reviewed on an annual basis by a review board now a court has the authority to stay the proceedings for a defendant who is unlikely to become fit if any of the following conditions are true right so the accused is unlikely to ever become fit the accused does not pose a significant threat to the safety of the public or a stay of proceedings is in the interest of the proper administration of justice in any of those three circumstances the court does have the authority to stay the proceedings for a defendant um especially because they think that they will never become you know fit to stand trial so seen from this perspective the concept of fair justice is done or it's ensured by ensuring by focusing on two elements one the person accused of the crime in question is truly fit to stand trial and if the person is not we have a system in place to restore fitness wherever possible so that the person can go through the proceedings in the most fair um and humane manner
Right. So other than whether or not somebody is fit to stand trial, the other issue at question is the mental state at the time of the offense. So insanity or impairment of mental or emotional functioning that affects perception, beliefs and motivations at the time of the offense um, has been defined as being uh, as not being of sound mind and being mentally deranged and irrational. That's the definition we utilize for insanity. Now, insanity removes the responsibility for performing a particular act because of an uncontrollable impulse or delusions, um, you know, or things of that nature. So let's go back in time a little bit to 1843 to understand uh, a significant case that influenced the ruling on insanity um, and the ways in which we process them within a court system. So in January 9, uh, 1843, in Middlesex, uh, England, Daniel McNaughton took a pistol and shot Edward Drummond. He actually believed Edward Drummond was the British Prime Minister, Robert Peel. And he, the intended target is believed to have been Robert Peel, but Edward Drummond is the one that actually uh, gets shot, and the wound was fatal. So Drummond died five days later, and McNaughton was charged with his murder. Now, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. And at trial, evidence was given of the shooting of Drummond and witnesses were called on behalf of McNaughton. And, there, and those witnesses attested to the fact that he was not of sound mind at the time uh, that he committed the crime. The medical evidence uh, brought forward at the time uh, suggested that McNaughton was not capable of exercising control over his acts while he was under his state of delusion. Due to the nature of McNaughton's condition, these delusions went on gradually until they reached a climax, which obviously ended with uh, Drummond being shot. Now, evidence brought before the court about the condition from which McNaughton suffered stated that a man may go on for years quietly whilst under the delusional influence. Keep in mind, in 1843, we didn't know as much about mental illness as we do today. In fact, our development has helped us understand how people live with mental health conditions and mental health episodes uh, for very, very long points in their life. Our greater understanding today of mental health and mental illness gives us a better frame of reference. But this case is from 1843, right? In any case, at the trial, the Chief Justice basically took the position that what was in question was whether or not McNaughton was in of sound mind at the time he committed the crime. And his instructions then to the jury became, if they believed he was not of sound mind and he could not be responsible for the decisions that he was making, then the verdict should go in his favor. On the other hand, if they believed he was of sound mind and he was capable and aware of the decisions he was making at the time he shot Drummond, then the Chief Justice instructed that their verdict should be against him. Now, as they deliberated and the case went on, Daniel McNaughton was found not guilty. And following his trial, a panel of judges sort of had to sit down with a bunch of questions that were put before them on the subject of insanity to determine what the ultimate takeaway would be. They considered, um, you know, how we would look at someone who was afflicted with insane delusions, right? What level of culpability and guilt should be assigned? They also sat down and weighed out whether or not a jury should be the one deciding on that affliction. 
and whether or not the person should be charged uh, with the commission of a crime, right? Um, they also looked at whether or not a medical person could make an assessment of the case based on witnessing the accused during the trial, even if they had never met the trial uh, the person before. Now, after they deliberated this and a bunch of other questions, the decision and the outcome they responded to resulted in a legal definition. So the response to the questions the judge formulated uh, developed into what we call today the McNaughton rules, right? And these provided the legal definition of insanity. They provided that a defendant wishing to rely on the defense of insanity must show that they labored under a defect of reason, meaning they weren't able to think clearly. That defect of reason was caused by a disease of the mind, and that disease of mind basically resulted in the uh, person not knowing the nature or the quality of his or her acts, or that you know what they were doing was actually wrong. It's worth reminding uh, the listener here that Daniel McNaughton never got away with it. And this is unfortunately a sad public perception that people utilize, uh, you know, this claim of insanity just to get away with being responsible. As I pointed out earlier, in many cases, the sentences served were longer than they would have got if they were found guilty under normal circumstances. In the case of Daniel McNaughton, he served out his life in a mental institute. So, this idea that we have developed that people get away with it is highly flawed because the process of proving um, a mental defect that prevents you from being culpable is actually significantly higher than the average Canadian assumes. In 1992, Bill C-30 was enacted. And the term not guilty by reason of insanity was changed to not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder, or the acronym more commonly known, NCRMD. That's not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. Section 16 of the Canadian Criminal Code was also changed to read, no person is criminally responsible for an act committed or an omission made while suffering from a mental disorder that rendered the person incapable of appreciating the nature and quality of the act or omission or knowing that it was wrong. End quote. In 1999, in Winco v. British Columbia, the Supreme Court of Canada stated that a defendant who is NCRMD should only be detained if he or she poses a criminal threat to the public. Otherwise, the defendant should receive an absolute discharge. Studies in the United States of America have shown that less than 1% of all felony cases will argue an insanity defense. And approximately 75% of defendants who argue the insanity defense are actually rejected. So, this does not happen as often as people think it does. Insanity defenses typically occur when opposing sides prosecution and defense agree to such a verdict. So this is very rarely used as a self-serving sort of method um, of getting away with something. And I keep coming back to that because that is definitely the common perception. Defendants found NCRMD are likely to have major psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia, 
and many past uh, mental health problems that resulted in hospitalizations or prior rulings of unfitness. So three outcomes are possible following a, a finding of NCRMD. It doesn't just end there, right? So the three possible outcomes, if someone is deemed to be not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder, the first one could be an absolute discharge. So it's used if the defendant is deemed to not be a threat to society or possesses low risk of reoffending. An absolute discharge is a release without any restrictions. The second option the court might utilize is a conditional discharge. A defendant is released but must meet certain conditions such as not possessing a firearm or, you know, if they fail to meet the conditions that are imposed, that could result in incarceration or being sent to a psychiatric facility. Now, the third option, and this would arguably be if there was a higher risk of reoffending or there was, uh, it was deemed that there was a threat to society, regardless of the reason, the person could be sent to a psychiatric facility hold. And in those cases, the defendant may be ordered to be detained at a psychiatric facility. In order to reform that uh, condition that existed before where people served indefinite periods of time in mental uh, institutions, Bill C-30 also introduced the concept of capping, right? So they put a maximum period of time um, where a person with mental illness could sort of be held. And for a violent offense, that, that number was 10 years, the same length of time as the prison term for such a crime. And if the defendant is uh, still perceived to be dangerous, he or she could be, you know, involuntarily committed to a secure hospital. So if the defendant was declared a mentally disordered, dangerous or a violent offender, this designation could increase that cap as well. Right. So they'd look at four main criteria um, when figuring out the disposition of the case. One is public safety two is mental state of the defendant. Three would be reintegration of the defendant into society. And the fourth would be other needs of the defendant. All right, welcome back. And in this last section, we're going to talk about automatism. So that refers to the unconscious and uh, involuntary behavior of a person, right? So that is the person committing the act is not aware at all of what he or she is doing. Now, the Supreme Court of Canada stated that there are two forms of automatism, non-insane and insane. The trial judge must be the one that decides if there is sufficient evidence that the jury could find that the defendant's behavior was involuntary. The trial judge determines if the condition is a mental disorder, i.e. insane, or non-mental disorder, that would be non-insane automatism. Canadian courts have recognized the defense of non-insane automatism in the following circumstances. So someone had a physical blow to their head. Uh, they had a physical ailment such as a stroke. They were hypoglycemic. They were suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. They were sleepwalking or involuntarily intoxicated or received uh, you know, a psychological blow from an extreme extraordinary uh, external event that might have you know reasonably been expected to dis uh, create a disassociative state in an average or normal person the main difference between the defenses of not criminally responsible by uh, means of mental disorder and automatism lay in the verdict outcomes right so an ncrmd verdict may result in the defendant being sent to a mental health facility 
In contrast, a successful non-insane automatism verdict means that the defendant is not guilty at all and is then released without condition. The basic premise being that they were not at all aware and in no case were they responsible for the actions uh, because it was both involuntary and unconscious, right? So courts have also just clarified and they've stated that self-induced intoxication resulting in a state similar to automatism is not available as a defense for a general intent offense. And in 1995, Bill C-72 was passed, which stated that intoxication is not even a defense for violent crimes. All right, so that concludes this episode. It was a brief overview of uh, the role of forensic psychologists in uh, advising uh, lawyers and the legal system on jury selection, things of that nature. And then finally, we looked at uh, you know the issue of mental insanity as it was commonly referred to before. And we considered how the new uh, label of not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder is handled by our court system. Uh, we sought to change some of the improper perceptions about its usage and highlight some of the options the court has when dealing with a person who is NCRMD. Stay tuned. I thank you for listening. This has been a Complexity Unpacked episode with Professor G. We'll be back with our next episode uh, on the subject shortly. So stay tuned and have a great day. 